Well, one of the realities of the world that we're living in is that uh, most of us spend a little bit too much time scrolling through social media, right? If we're honest, it's one of the realities of the world we're living in. And social media has its strengths, right? It, it's got some, some things that are good that can help us out, and it, but it's also got its weaknesses. And I think we all know that. But one of the, the biggest problems with social media is that there's just so, negative, uh, so much negative content out there. You know what I mean? There's just so much negative content that it's easy to walk away from social media feeling kind of cynical and pessimistic. So much that, pop, uh, that pops up on social media is just designed to kind of provoke outrage in us. Right? It's full of controversy and really strong opinions. Our timeline, our, our feeds are often filled with bad news and tragedy. And so there's something really kind of beautiful and refreshing when you come across a really good timeline cleanse. You know what I mean? Like one of those stories that's just kind of lighthearted and uplifting, like a story about a silly animal or like a, a good dad. And uh, the other day, I kind of hit the social media jackpot because I came across a video that was about both of those things, about a silly animal that was a good dad. I came across a video uh, uh, that the World Bird Sanctuary in Missouri put out about a bald eagle, eagle that they have there uh, whose name is Murphy. And Murphy, oh, that's the picture of him. Isn't he, isn't he adorable? Uh, Murphy, as you can see there, what he's doing there, he looks a little silly. What he's doing is he's giving everything that he's got to incubate a rock. <laughs> that's right. Not an egg, a rock. He's built himself a nest. He's been laying on this rock. Uh, eagle parents usually turn their eggs over every couple of hours, and Murphy's been faithfully nudging his rock, turning it over. He's been protecting his rock. He's guarding it carefully. If any of the other eagles come near it, he'll squawk to try to chase them away. He's giving everything that he's got to try to hatch life out of this little rock. Isn't there something just so beautiful, innocent about that? Right? Bless his heart. He's not even asking around to see if he's doing it right. You know, I'm sure some of the women eagles are just like, <laughs> all right. He has full confidence. He has full confidence that his efforts will not be wasted. That in a few weeks, new life will burst forth from this rock that he's been working so hard to incubate. And of course, it's obvious to the rest of us, and I imagine to the other eagles right there in the bird sanctuary, that no matter how careful and how attentive Murphy might be with this little rock, that there's no hope of that thing coming to life. Because it's a rock. Murphy has a terrible misunderstanding. He's trying to find life where life cannot be found. And all of his time and all of his energy is going into trying to make this thing happen that's just never gonna give him the results that he's hoping for. And I know that this might sound a little bit ridiculous, but as I watched the video, 
I couldn't help but feel like I could kind of relate, kind of relate to Murphy. And I think in a, in a way, if we're really honest, there's something about that picture of trying to hatch life out of a rock that rings kind of true for all of us. Because we all have hopes and dreams and a vision of what our life is supposed to look like. We all have ideas about success and what's going to bring us happiness and wholeness. And we cling to these dreams and we protect them and we nurture them and we spend so much time and energy trying to bring these things to life and make them happen. But so often, they're based on misconceptions, on distorted ideas about where real life is found. And so much of discipleship is hearing Jesus say to us, you think you're going to find life here. You think you're going to find peace and joy here. You're spending all of your time and energy trying to bring life to this idea you have about what your life should look like. But it's just a rock. Follow me. Follow me, right? Today is Palm Sunday, as we've been talking about, which is the first day of Holy Week on the Christian calendar. And this is the week where we reflect on and we remember Jesus' journey to the cross as we prepare to celebrate Easter next Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey as crowds cheered and laid palm branches on the ground before him. Now, throughout Jesus' entire ministry, he had been dismantling people's ideas and misunderstandings about success and what it means to live a life of faithfulness and blessing. He'd been challenging the people who had power and status and showing what it looks like to live in humility and self-giving love. Everywhere that Jesus went and in everything that he did, he made it very clear that the kingdom of God that he was proclaiming and inviting people to experience was completely countercultural. It was a whole different way of living and looking at the world. But if there's a single moment in the Gospels where the stark contrast between the ways of Jesus and the ways of the world are most fully exposed and brought to the surface, it's here. In the dynamics at play as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem and in the events that unravel from this point forward. In this moment, the hopes and dreams that people have been holding onto and their misconceptions about success and victory are held in direct contrast to the ways of Jesus and what he's trying to help people understand as he enters Jerusalem and makes his way towards the cross. The triumphal entry is one of those few passages that can be found in all four accounts of uh, the gospel that we have in our Bibles, but we have been spending our time recently in the book of John. So that's where we're going to read the passage from this morning. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me to John chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 19. So John 12, verses 12 to 19. Now, one of the things that you might remember about John's gospel 
is that when Jesus performs miracles, John doesn't actually call them miracles, right? This is distinct to the Gospel of John. He refers to them as signs. John wants us to know that the miracles that Jesus performs aren't just cool tricks, right? They're just not, not just a way of showing off his power, that they actually are signs that reveal things to us about Jesus' identity and about what he's come to do in the world. And right before the triumphal entry, Jesus has just performed his seventh and final sign in the book of John. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Of course, this was a gift, right, to Lazarus's sisters and to his loved ones who had been so grieved by the loss of, of Lazarus. But this was also much more than that, right? This was a sign that pointed to something about Jesus' identity. It was a sign that pointed to the fact that Jesus had authority and power over death, even over death. And needless to say, people were amazed by this miracle. People were flocking to Jesus, and more and more people were believing in him. And so the religious leaders, right, who are feeling pretty threatened already at this point, they start to freak out. And they decided that they weren't just going to kill Jesus, that they're going to kill Lazarus too. You, you think that they would give the guy a break, right? I mean, he just died once. But not so, right? Lazarus is getting Jesus all kinds of attention, and so they decided that they needed to kill him as well. You can really sense just the fear and the sense of self-preservation in the religious leaders as they start to realize that their power, that their status, that the religious traditions that were so core to their identity are hanging in the balance as Jesus keeps doing the impossible and drawing people to himself. So Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He's had his feet anointed with oil by Mary when he was at Lazarus' house for dinner. And now he makes his way towards Jerusalem. So verse 12, let's have a look. It says, The next day, a great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So the festival that we are talking about here is the festival of Passover. And Passover was the festival that was really at the heart of Jewish life. It was the festival that commemorated the exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was when the Jewish people gathered together to remember that they were God's people, that their God was faithful, and that their God had set them free. But it wasn't just an event that celebrated something that happened in the past. It was an event that also anticipated something that they were waiting to happen in the future. It was an event that anticipated that God would rescue them from their oppression of their enemies once and for all, just as he had done before. 
And any Jewish person who was living at this time would have seen the enemies that they needed liberation from as the Romans, right? The Jewish people were living under the oppression of the Romans at this time. And because it was Passover, there would have been tons of people in Jerusalem at this time. People would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so there would have been big crowds all over the place. You can imagine like Costco, right, on a Saturday in December, kind of like that. And the news starts spreading, right? There's no social media. People aren't posting about this. But just by word of mouth, the news starts spreading that Jesus, this rabbi who had just raised a man from the dead, was on his way to Jerusalem. So let's see how the crowds respond. Verse 3, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now, these are familiar words, right? But this, this moment is packed with symbolism and with significance. First of all, the people in the crowd come with palm branches. And palm branches were traditionally associated with a different Jewish festival, actually, with a festival called the Festival of Tabernacles, where people would wave palm branches around to praise God. Um, they weren't traditionally connected with Passover. But by this time in history, palm branches had more or less become a national symbol. Two centuries earlier, when Simon Maccabeus drove out Israel's enemies from Jerusalem, people waved palm branches in the air to celebrate. So palm branches were associated with military victory and political freedom for the Jewish people. And so as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and people are laying down palm branches before him, it's really a symbol of their hope that he is the warrior king that they've been waiting for, that he's about to conquer the Romans and usher in a time of peace and prosperity. That's what the Jewish people were hoping for and expecting from the Messiah. And as the people come with their palm branches, they're shouting words from Psalm 118, right? They say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And that word Hosanna means save. Save us now, really. Save us now. The Jewish people had been waiting. Right? They'd been waiting and waiting for God to fulfill his promise to send a Messiah to come and rescue them. And here, they recognize that Jesus is the King of Israel, that he's the Messiah, he's the answer, he's the one that they've been waiting for, he's the one who is able to save them. Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples didn't understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So the crowds use palm leaves to declare that Jesus is the Messiah. 
But Jesus chooses a different symbol to identify himself. Jesus finds a young donkey and he sits on it. That's not how anyone would have been expecting the Messiah to arrive, right? Everyone would have expecting the Messiah to show up storming in on a war horse. But Jesus chose a donkey, the symbol of peace and humility. And then John reminds us that this actually fulfills a prophecy from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 9 verse 9 is where that passage comes from. And it was a prophecy that a, a gentle king would come, riding on a colt, who would bring peace across all of the nations. But this passage didn't come to mind for the people in this moment. It wasn't until later, John tells us, after Jesus' death and resurrection, that the disciples realized how everything kind of fit together and how Jesus was fulfilling this prophecy in this moment. And isn't that so often the case, right? That we don't notice how God is working in the moment. Often we can't see it. But when we look back over different seasons of our lives and different situations, we can see how God was with us, right? Working everything out, you know, with us all along. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, I love this. Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Pharisees are clinging so tightly, trying to hold on to control. They're doing everything they can to get Jesus out of the way. But they see these crowds rallying around Jesus and they just throw up their hands and they say, this is useless. The whole world has gone after him. And of course, that expression, the whole world that's gone after him, it's it's just an exaggeration, right? But John sees deeper meaning in it. Because in the very next section, we hear about some Greeks who were in the city for Passover asking where they could meet Jesus. It's this little hint in the text that Jesus is about to break down the walls that kept some people on the outside and others on the inside. It's this little hint that the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection really is good news for the whole world, and that people from all places and backgrounds will be invited to receive the grace of God and enter into his kingdom. Now, there's some irony in this passage, or maybe it's more accurate to say that God's ability to work in mysterious ways is on full display in this passage, because this is a critical moment in Jesus' ministry, Everything he's done so far has been building up to this point. Maybe you remember that at different uh, points throughout the book of John, Jesus has been saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. In this chapter, in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus' journey into Jerusalem is a big 
deal. It deserves to be celebrated and honored, and it is. Crowds of people gather around Jesus and cheer for him and declare that he's the Messiah. And what they're saying about him is true. He's worthy of the praise that they're giving him. However, in that moment, the people have no idea what's going to happen over the course of the next week. The people have no idea that Jesus is about to be crucified on a Roman cross. The people, or the Messiah that the people are imagining as they throw down their palm leaves and shout their praises is completely different than the Messiah that Jesus actually is. The people had a clear vision of what they wanted their future to look like. They had hopes and dreams of God sending a mighty warrior king who would take down their enemies so that they could finally live in freedom and peace, so that they could finally experience prosperity and power. That was what they imagined success would look like. That was the future that they imagined that God had in store for them. And they clung to those dreams and they protected those dreams and they placed all of their hope in those dreams. And because of that, they couldn't make any sense of what God was doing in the world through Jesus. They didn't realize that they were clinging to hopes and dreams that could never offer them real peace or real freedom or real life. They had no framework for understanding that the power of self-giving love, not the power of force or violence was the only thing that could actually change the world. The Gospel of Luke tells us that as Jesus approached Jerusalem on that donkey, he looked out over the city and he wept. He wept. Picture that. Picture that for a moment. Jesus, the Messiah, God in human form, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with tears streaming down his face. And as he wept, he said, if only, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus knew who the people wanted him to be. And they just didn't get it, right? They just didn't get it. Jesus is the Messiah, but he is a different Messiah than anyone was expecting or hoping for. And Jesus is leading the people into a new future of freedom and peace, but in a very different way than anyone had been expecting or hoping for. And as we see things unfold, it doesn't take long for the enthusiasm of the crowds to wear off. Jesus starts to speak about the fact that he's going to give up his life. And in chapter 12, verse 34, the crowd gives this response to what Jesus is saying. They say, we understood from scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say that the Son of Man 
will die. Who is this son of man anyway? How can you say that the son of man will die? They thought that this was a story about winning. They thought that the Messiah was going to lead them into victory. And here he's saying that he's about to die. A dead Messiah didn't make any sense to them. That wasn't the story that they thought they were a part of. That wasn't the story that they wanted to be a part of. And within less than a week, the crowds that were waving palm branches in the air and laying them at Jesus' feet, the crowds that were shouting out praise to Jesus and declaring that he was the Messiah, would be crying out for his crucifixion. Even Jesus' closest friends end up turning on him as the events play out. Judas sells out Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 silver coins. Peter swears up and down that he'd be willing to die with Jesus, and then he denies knowing him three times. When we look at, the, the, when we look at it within the bigger picture of Holy Week, Palm Sunday reminds us of just how easily confused and derailed we are as human beings. One day we can be praising God and trusting in God, promising him that we're going to live our lives for him. And the next day we can be pulled off course completely, fighting for our own agendas and for control, living for ourselves, chasing after our own dreams. And it's easy for us to look back over these stories and to wonder how the people involved could turn on Jesus so quickly. How they could be so stuck in their misconceptions that they totally miss the goodness and the truth in what Jesus is proclaiming. But the reality is that we really aren't all that different than they are. We can be so focused on chasing after what we think our life should look like that we miss what God is doing in the here and the now. We can be full of faith one day and ready to step out and take risks and then be racked with anxiety and fear the next day. We pray for God's kingdom to come, but then we back away from doing anything that might make a difference that could require us to give up our time or our money We read Jesus' teachings about loving our enemies and then we use his name to justify ridiculing people and mistreating people that we don't understand. We see Jesus doing things like riding on a donkey and washing his disciples' feet. And then we chase after things like power and status, thinking that they'll bring us fulfillment. We follow a savior who gave up his life for us and calls us to give up our lives for others, and yet we spend so much time focusing on ourselves and what we want. We are so easily pulled off course from the life that Jesus calls us to. And that is exactly why the Easter story is such good news. Because even when everyone had turned on him, even when the crowds were calling out for his crucifixion, even when his closest friends had betrayed him, Jesus remained faithful all the way through. In John 12, verse 27, 
as Jesus is preparing himself to face the cross, he says, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Jesus says, this is the very reason that he came, to go to the cross so that we could be forgiven, right? so that we could be set free from sin, so that we could be reconciled to God and experience new life in him. Not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but as a gift of grace. Jesus never fails, even when we do. Jesus never wavers, even when we do. Jesus never abandons us, even when we turn away from him. It was true then, and it's true today. John 3.16 tells us that Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross give us a picture of God's incredible love for us. And I know this is a well-known passage. It's one that's probably familiar, probably already saying it in your mind. Uh, but it's really important, and so we're going to read it. Uh, it says this, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. John tells us that in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we see God's love most fully on display. And last week we talked about love, right? How love is kind of a difficult word. It's a difficult word to define because it can mean so many different things in our culture. And most often when we talk about love, we're thinking about a feeling, right? We think about love as like an emotional experience. But scripture talks about love in a way that's much deeper than that and bigger than that and that's much steadier than that. And so we looked at four different elements of love that came from a book called A Fellowship of Difference by Scott McKnight. Four different aspects of love that scripture says God has for us and that we're called to have for one another. And the first element of love that we looked at was rugged commitment. In scripture, love isn't primarily an emotional experience. It's a covenant commitment to another person. It's a commitment that remains steady, right? Even when the relationship gets tough, even when the other person isn't at their best, As Jesus makes his way towards the cross, he shows his rugged commitment to us. He endures the worst things that a person could have to endure emotionally, spiritually, and physically to rescue us, despite our our weaknesses and our wavering. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus shows us his love through his rugged commitment to us. A second element of love that we talked about was a rugged commitment to be with. In scripture, love is all about presence. God shows his love to Israel by promising that he'll always be their God and that they will always be his people. He shows his love to his people by sending Jesus into the world, right? Jesus who was called Emmanuel, God with us. 
And as he makes his way to the cross, Jesus shows his rugged commitment to be with us. Jesus is willing to endure the cross so that our relationship with God can be restored, so that we can experience unity with him right, and with each other. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. The third element of love that we talked about was a rugged commitment to be for another person. Right? When you love someone, you're in their corner. You've got their back. You want the best for them. And as he heads to the cross, Jesus shows his rugged commitment to be for us. On the cross, Jesus does for us what we were not able to do for ourselves. He endures the worst so that we could be made new and experience eternal life. Romans 8 verses 31 to 32 say this, If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us, won't he also give us everything else? And the fourth element of love that we talked about was a rugged commitment to be unto God's perfect design for a person, or in other words, it's a commitment to helping someone become the person that God made them to be. And on the cross, Jesus didn't just free us from sin. He frees us to experience new life in his kingdom to be transformed by the power of his spirit into people whose lives are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Some of you are singing a song in your head. As he heads to the cross, Jesus shows his love for us through his rugged commitment to making a way for us to become the people that God designed us to be. Jesus might not have been the Messiah that the people were hoping for, but he was and he is so much better. His perfect, rugged love kept him moving steadily towards the cross, even as he was being rejected, even as he was being betrayed. And because of that, we have forgiveness, freedom, and new life in him. Jesus was not about to lead a violent overthrow against the Romans. He was about to overthrow the power of evil and death. Jesus wasn't about to win political freedom, right, for the Jewish people. He was about to make a way for them to experience freedom from fear and sin and shame and offer them freedom to live the life that God designed them to live. He wasn't about to lead a victory that would put the Jewish nation into a position of power and dominance. He was about to win a victory that would make a way for all people to be renewed and redeemed and welcomed into the family of God. He wasn't paving a way into the future where the hopes and the dreams that the Jewish people had been clinging to would finally be fulfilled. 
He was breaking open the way for them to experience a deeper fulfillment, a deeper satisfaction than they even knew to ask for. One that couldn't be taken for them regardless of what they went through because it was rooted in their relationship with God. Jesus wasn't the Messiah that the Jewish people were hoping for. He's so much better. And he isn't the Messiah that we always want him to be either. When we are looking to Jesus to bless our plans and fight for our agendas, he's so much better. And it's in him and him alone that our deepest hopes and dreams and needs can be fulfilled as we lay down our own agendas and surrender ourselves to the King of Kings. In John 12, verses 24 to 25, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Or I like how Eugene Peterson translates verse 25 in the message. He says, anyone who holds on to this life just as it is destroys that life. But if you go reckless, but if you let it go reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Jesus showed us throughout his ministry and in our passage from this morning and especially on the cross, the way of life that leads to peace and joy, the way of life in his kingdom, the way of humility and sacrificial love and surrender to the will of God. And each and every day, there are things that compete for our attention and our affection and try to pull us off course. But again and again, Jesus draws us back to the reality that real life, eternal life, life to the full, can only be found in him. And as we head into Holy Week and we prepare to celebrate Easter, may we be people who let go of our need for things like power and control and status and comfort. And may we open ourselves up to the countercultural ways of Jesus as we surrender our lives to him and reflect his reckless love to the world around us. I'm going to invite the worship team uh, to come on up. Uh, I'm just going to close in prayer, and then I'm going to invite you to join me in a little little bit of a a practice. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And God, we know that we are so vulnerable to try to find life in places where life cannot be found. But we know that, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And we are so thankful. that you were willing to go to the cross, that even when we are at our worst, when we're at our weakest, even when we fail, God, you never do, that you're faithful. I pray, God, that you would give us a renewed sense of just your love for us and the freedom that we have when we surrender ourselves to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.